Section 26 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Militia. Handel and the Oratorio. In myriad ways, the 17th century had wrought a mighty task. Founding their practice upon the technique acquired by previous generations, its composers had evolved definite styles of composition, both in the polyphonic and the monodic schools. The demand for greater sonority had caused them to exploit the harmonic resources of music more than before. The perfection of instruments and instrumental technique had stimulated melodic invention and rhythmic variety, and this increased technique had in turn been applied to vocal music, which, beginning with Caccini in 1600, had developed a marvellous virtuosity, demanding ever greater means of display. While the old vocal polyphony had largely yielded its sway to the more individualistic art of solo singing, its technique and ideas were preserved in the instrumental forms of chamber music, which, as we have seen, crystallised during the course of the century, and as the same composers were bound to essay both styles, a union of the two had in a measure been effected. In such a period of transition, there was little chance for ultimate perfection. It was an age of innovators rather than masters. Yet the century had produced some great men too. Alessandro Scarlatti and Arcangelo Corelli in Italy, Lully, Rameau and Couperin in France, Schutz, Froberger and Kuhnau were men of no small attainments. Their work had sufficient power and charm to gain acceptance for the new styles and to popularise them but it remained for another generation to bring forth two men great enough to make them survive through posterity, to give them lasting life. Those two men were Georg Friedrich Handel and Johann Sebastian Bach. It is notable that both came of the same spiritual stock, that of the Thuringian church organists, that contemplative sequestered school of artists, imbued with a homely philosophy and influenced by the sweet quietude of German domesticity, which wrought for the glory of God and the uplift of the human soul. Handel and Bach were born within one month of each other, and within a very short distance, for Eisenach is less than an hour's run from Halle, where Handel saw the light of day, February 23rd, 1685. They were as nearly contemporaries in the literal sense as men can be, Bach died but nine years before his colleague, but in spirit they were generations removed from one another. Curious as it is that they never in their life met, though well acquainted with each other's work, we may find a psychological explanation for the facts, in that Handel represented the spirit and apogee of his age, summing up the achievements of the generations immediately gone before, while Bach, penetrating into the very essence of the music of past ages, evolved from it a new art that should inspire the musicians of generations to come, that should go surging down through the centuries like a mighty everlasting stream from which the genius of composers could draw continuous inspiration without the danger of exhaustion, an art so great that it had to break all the shackles and restrictions of its time and build for itself a new system, create a new language. Who shall say which of the two men had the greater talent? Their difference is one of character, not of degree. Bach, exploring quietly the resources of his own soul, 
hardly stirred from his narrow surroundings. Handel, of infinite flexibility and adaptability, appropriated every style, every trick, every brilliant effect he heard, imbuing it with new power. Restlessly he roamed to Berlin and Hamburg, to Italy and finally to England, everywhere sweeping up in his mighty grasp the achievements of men gone before him, indefatigably composing and rousing a wandering world to new enthusiasms. Bach, unmindful of the public taste, retiring, profound, inexorable. Handel, constantly trimming his sails to the wind of public favour, achieving success after success, not by new means, but by using those at his command with the full power of genius. From early youth he felt the stirrings of that genius. Before he was seven, indeed, he had taught himself to play upon the harpsichord. Surreptitiously, we are told, for his father, village surgeon at Gibichenstein, near Halle, intent upon the social advancement of his son, was so fearful of his son's developing a non-productive talent that he even refused to send him to school lest he should learn his notes. Well known is the story of how admiring friends smuggled the harpsichord into the garret, where young Georg would delight his heart in the still hours of the night. No less known, also, are the circumstances of his father's journey to the court of Saxe Wiesenfels, where a son, by a former marriage, was valet de chambre to the duke. Young Handel insisted on following the carriage on foot until his father relented and took him to the court, where he came in contact with the duke's musicians and was permitted to play upon the organ. It was at the duke's peremptory advice that the father finally consented to give his boy a musical training. F. W. Zachau, the organist of the Liebfrauenkirche, which raises its tall spires in the marketplace of Halle, where opposite we now behold Handel's monument, became his master. For three years he was made to compose a sacred motet every week by way of exercise. When, in 1696, Handel was sent on a visit to Berlin, he already astounded musicians, like Attilio Ariosti, by his powers of improvisation, though the famous Bononcini, who was later to become his bitter rival, seems already to have looked upon the boy with suspicion, for he gave him the difficult test of playing a newly composed fugue at sight, which Handel promptly fulfilled. The elector of Brandenburg desired to attach him to his court, and send him to Italy for further study. But to forestall this, he was summoned to return home, and again placed in charge of the competent Zachau. In the next year, his father died, and, obliged to support himself and his mother, he secured on probation the post of organist at the Dom und Schlosskirche, at the same time entering the university, that university so closely identified with Protestant theology as a student. Handel's nature was not one to tolerate the comparative seclusion and retirement of Halle for long. Moreover, it inclined to a style of music less austere than that of the Lutheran church, so that when echoes of quite a different school, joined to reports of brilliant successes, reached his ears, he gave them ready heed. Such reports came from Hamburg, now the chief stronghold of Italian opera in Germany, in order to explain its existence, we must for a moment turn the reader's mind back to the already related importation of opera into Germany in 1627, and its first exponent there, Heinrich Schütz. This event had been followed by operatic performances, in Italian, 
at Regensburg, L'Ingano d'Amore by Ferrari, 1653, Vienna, Antonio Draghi's Alcindo and Cloridia, 1655, and Munich, Giulio Riva's Adelaide Regia Principiosa di Sousa. But no further attempt at opera in German was made till the appearance at Hamburg of Johann Tyler's Singspiel, Adam und Eva, in 1678. By virtue of this composer's efforts, Hamburg attained the operatic supremacy of Germany. Names now all but forgotten, Johann Furch, Johann Frank, Johann Küsser, were staunch pioneers in the cause of German art at this northern output, though their Germanism no doubt suffered a generous admixture of Italian influence. The same is true of the work of the triumvirate of the Hamburg Opera, Kaiser, Matheson and Telemann, which held sway there from the early 60s on. The first of these produced no less than 116, and probably more, operas for Hamburg during 1694 to 1734. To him especially, the opera house owed its worldwide fame. To his work as impresario, perhaps more than as composer, for from Basilius, first performed at Wolfenbüttel in 1693, and the next year in Hamburg, to Circe, his swan song of forty years after. All the works that were able to arouse enthusiasm in his time are but names to us. Nevertheless, Kaiser may well count as having placed German opera upon a firm foundation. The style of his works, rediscovered in 1810, is more German than that of his colleagues, and, though less remarkable for rhetorical perfection, compares favourably with Lully's in the matter of variety of expression and dramatic truth. Handel had already met Telemann, Kaiser's colleague, who passed through Halle in 1701, and it was not unlikely that he received from that exponent of the operatic style an impulse toward greater melodiousness than he was likely to receive from Zachau. Agostino Stefani, another melodist, also visited Halle in 1703. In the same year we see Handel set out for Hamburg, in order to have himself thoroughly made over under the influence of its famous operatic school. He joined the orchestra of Kaiser's Opera House as Villino di Pieno, passing himself off as a novice, but when Kaiser went into hiding from his creditors, Handel promptly took his place at the harpsichord and shone forth as conductor so brilliantly that he was retained upon Kaiser's return. Here he also met Matheson, the brilliant composer and theorist, then slightly older than himself. An anecdote of their early friendship recounts how the two went to Lübeck to apply for an organist's position, but speedily returned when they learned that the new incumbent was obliged to marry his predecessor's daughter. This friendship came to a sudden end, when during a performance of Matheson's Cleopatra, in which the composer was wont to conduct and also to sing the role of Antonio, while Handel substituted at the harpsichord. Upon one occasion the latter stubbornly refused to yield his place, after the supposed death of Antonio, to the resuscitated hero, and a quarrel ensued, resulting in a duel in which it is said that Handel's life was barely saved by the protection afforded by a brass button. It was not long before Handel made his own debut in opera. Both Almira and Nero were produced in 1705. Kaiser's influence is felt in these works. They are distinguished by much of the melodious charm which has saved the favourite 
Lasha Kyopianga from Oblivion. This rare gem was originally composed as a saraband in one of Handel's early chamber works. Its use in the opera preludes what was to become a common practice with Handel in musical economy. That Kaiser was already jealous of his young rival is evidenced by the fact that he himself reset the libretto of Nero and performed it at the Hamburg Opera in place of Handel's. We may remind the reader at this point that the German opera in Hamburg, despite its many incongruities, was the only opera at that time aiming at dramatic fidelity. Public taste had run to vocalisation pure and simple, and singers were the sole arbiters of operatic style. In the Hamburg opera, the recitatives, which fully explained the story, were sung in German, while the arias in the prevailing florid Italian style were sung in Italian, as the vernacular was not considered a suitable medium for vocal display. The orchestra was a combination of instruments aiming at quantitative rather than qualitative sonority, the string body consisting of two violin parts and cellos and basses playing in unison, while the woodwind, chiefly oboes and bassoons, usually doubled the string parts. What the effect must have been can be imagined when we considered that in one of Handel's operas he used 26 oboes, while there were but six flutes, generally used only as an obligato instrument. The harmonic basis was furnished, as in the oldest Italian operas, by the figured bass played upon the harpsichord, which formed the centre of the orchestra. Two other Handel operas were performed at Hamburg during 1705 to 1706, namely Daphne and Florinda. In the latter year, we already see him on his way to Italy. In the meantime, however, Handel had essayed another form of composition, then popular in Germany, the Passion Oratorio. The Lutheran Church had adopted from the Catholic the practice of reciting the history of the Passion at Vespers during Holy Week. This had given an opportunity to composers for a peculiarly profound religious expression in music. Heinrich Schütz must be named as the chief representative of Passion music before Bach, though nearly 60 works of similar character have been preserved to us from before his time. The narrative was divided into three parts, representing Christ, the Evangelist and the People, which originally had been sung in chorus, but with the rise of monody, the first two were chanted by single voices. Except a few introductory words, the entire text was made up of scriptural narrative, but later the beautiful chorale tunes sung by the Lutheran congregation were interspersed by way of reflective comment. This all became so fast-bound a convention that when Kaiser produced his passion set to the words of Menance at Hamburg in 1704, the church censured him severely for admitting the chorale element. Entirely original music had been used for the passion service, however, as early as 1672, by Sebastiani. Handel's Ein kleines Passions Oratorium, composed in 1704, was arranged from the Gospel of St. John, into which he introduced contemplative airs instead of chorales. The chorus is mostly in five parts. The part of Pilate is taken by an alto, Christ by a tenor, and the evangelist by a bass. He introduces a more elaborate accompaniment for the dramatically heightened Ekehomo passage, while the biblical speeches are set in aria form. There are also duets, and a fugato chorus is sung by the soldiers, 
casting lots for the vestment. The Passion Poems, written by Brockers about this time, were set to music no less than thirty times between 1712 and 1727, and among the most important of these is one by Handel, written in 1716, while in attendance upon the Elector at Hanover, to which we shall recur later. Suffice it to say that, with every new work, such as Kaiser's, the dramatic element becomes more prominent. The meditative portions are now allotted to a definite character, such as Daughter of Zion, or a Faithful Soul, to be superseded still later by Mary Magdalene, the Disciple, the Virgin, etc. It may be said, then, to approach more nearly to the form of the oratorio, which, as we have seen in a previous chapter, had been cultivated in Italy by Carissimi and his followers. There, however, it had so nearly developed into the prevailing operatic form that it was distinguished from it only by the lack of scenery. The chorus, after being reduced to mere fragments, finally disappeared, as it had done in the opera. These were the materials from which Handel's genius was later to evolve virtually a new form of art. It is to Italy that Handel now turns his steps. That country had flooded Europe with singers, that won the public's heart wherever they appeared, and even the musicians of Germany could not assail their stronghold, reinforced by popular approval. An offer by the Prince Gaston de' Medici in 1705 had been proudly refused by Handel, unwilling to assume the position of a servant. He now undertook the journey at his own expense, and visiting not only Florence, but Rome, Venice, and Naples in turn composed constantly both secular and sacred music. No less than a dozen solo cantatas, those charming little melodic sketches, miniature operas in a sense, consisting of simple recitative and arioso over a figured bass, were produced at Florence, and upon his return after a short stay in Rome, he produced Rodrigo, his first Italian opera. Its overture shows the influence of Lully being in the form established by that composer and forthwith adopted by Handel for all his operas and oratorios. In this case, it closed with a suite of dances, including a gigue, a sarabande, a sailor's dance, a minuet, two bourrées, and a passecaille. The elaborateness of the accompaniments to many of the arias gave evidence of Handel's increased appreciation of brilliant orchestral effects. Rodrigo was an unqualified success, which was as real as it may have been surprising to Handel. Agrippina, produced in Venice, whither he went in 1708, appealed so strongly to the audience that at every cessation of the music there were loud cries of Viva il caro Sassone! Long live the dear Saxon! This enthusiastic reception of a German composer argues well for the broad judgment of the Italians, whose domination of the European musical world at that time was bitterly resented. But it was not an isolated instance, for twenty years later another German, Johann Adolf Hasse, was similarly honoured, and subsequent instances are frequent down to our present day, when the Italian enthusiasm for Wagner is hardly surpassed in Germany itself. On the other hand, there could have been but little that was strange to the Italian public in Handel's work. All through his Hamburg career he had been influenced by the Italian school. That school had long departed from the ideals of melodic expressiveness and dramatic verisimilitude 
and was now given over to prescribed conventions made for the benefit of the performer. It had become simply a string of set arias and recitatives, alternated in such a way as to provide the desired variety of the vocal exhibition. These rules, as summarised by Rockstro, exacted that there must always be six principal characters, three of each sex. The first woman must be a high soprano, the first man an artificial soprano, though he is the hero of the piece. The second man and the second woman might be either sopranos or contraltos. The third man sometimes was a tenor, and a bass would be included only when four men were in the cast. In each act, all the principal singers had to sing at least one of the arias, all of which were in the conventional da capo forms. These were the aria cantabile, aria di portmento, aria di mezzo, caratere, aria parlante, and aria di bravura. There had to be always a duet for the leading man and woman, and an ensemble, coro, of all the leading singers at the end. These limitations are sufficient explanation for the hopeless oblivion into which the operas of this period, including Handel's, have descended. Even of the individual arias, only a few are such as to interest or charm the modern listener. A few melodic gems, like Lascia Chiopianga, Mio Carabene, and two or three more, are the sum total that is of value in all this tremendous bulk of operatic works, which occupied the greater part of Handel's life. Posterity's verdict is just in these matters, nor need we feel any sense of regret at the loss when we consider the astounding rapidity with which these compositions were ground out. Agrippina had been completed within three weeks, and that the technique acquired in their writing must have yielded richer fruit in those works which remain as the master's monument. Hence we need pass but rapidly over the list of operas, serenata and oratorios composed by Handel during this period. All of them lie within the domain of Italian influence. He never attempted to develop the form further or reform it in any way. But, as we shall see later, he used it as the starting point for the new Handelian oratorio, which was the outstanding creation of his genius. The one important fact of Handel's Italian period is the influence he received from the composers of that country. While there he met Alessandro and Domenico Scalati, Lutti, Marcello, Pasquini, Corelli and Stefani, whom he already knew and who befriended him. In the genial circle of the Arcadian Academy, in the homes of the music-loving Marquis Ruspoli and the talented Cardinal Ottoboni in Rome, he absorbed Italian ideals and acquired Italian technique. In Rome, where the performance of opera was forbidden by ecclesiastical authority, he composed Il Trionfo del Tempo e del Disegnano, which he afterward made over into an English oratorio entitled The Triumph of Time and Truth, and another serenata, Aci, Galatea e Polifemo. Really, a cantata for three voices with orchestra was written in Naples. This work, however, has no connection with the work of a similar name which belongs to a later period. Agrippina, the opera mentioned above, did service in furnishing melodies for an oratorio, La Resurrezione, at once an outstanding instance of Handel's transition from opera to oratorio, 
and of his somewhat ruthless practice of using musical material for widely varying purposes. The use of Agrippina's air, both words and music, for the character of Mary Magdalene, is little calculated to recommend Handel's early works for devotional expression, but it surpassed in dramatic intensity anything in that form produced so far, for with the Italian melodic suavity, Handel combined from the first the rich harmonic sonority peculiar to the Germans, so happily fusing the old polyphonic and new monodic ideals that many of his early works already bear, as Riemann says, the stamp of classicism. It is interesting to note, however, that in Resurrezione, Handel makes such scant use of his contrapuntal powers that we find but two brief choruses in the entire work. It is an open question whether this oratorio was originally intended for presentation in a theatre, or, minus all action, in a church, nor is it known whether or not it was ever publicly performed. After a stay of almost five years, Handel prepared to return to Germany, for through the good offices of Stefani, who held the post of Kapellmeister to the Duke of Hanover, Handel secured that position as Stefani's successor in 1710. As he had, however, already had several invitations to go to London, then the great stronghold of Italian opera, he accepted his new post only on condition that he might visit that metropolis. He did so in the same year, and was so occupied and so carried away with success that he remained six months. As this is practically the beginning of Handel's English period, we may preface it by a few remarks upon the state of music in England at that time. End of section 26